If you have a copy of God's Word with you tonight, I do invite you to turn to the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 10. If you're visiting with us tonight for the first time at IBC, we trust that you will know the Lord's blessing. We pray that the Lord will draw near to you and encourage your heart and reveal to you the truths of His Son, the Lord Jesus. There are Bibles available. If you don't have a copy of a Bible you'd like to read with us, you can utilize the Bibles in the seats nearby. We're going to read together from Hebrews chapter 10 tonight and from the 19th verse. Let's hear together the Word of God. Hebrews 10, commencing at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray together. Our great God, of covenant mercy and covenant grace. We extol you this evening, for you are our God and we are your people. And we bless you. We thank you for this evening hour of worship on your day that you have graciously given to us that we might come before you to sing your praises, to hear your word, to seek you in prayer, to be renewed and refreshed and revived in our hearts as we look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And O oh our God, as we come now to your word tonight, we pray that you would hear our prayer and draw near to each and every one of us. We pray that you would lift up the downcast, you would encourage the discouraged, we pray, O oh God, that you would affirm the faithful and that you would admonish the wayward. That, O oh our God, we would be a faithful people, living not for ourselves, but for you and for your glory alone. Hear us, Lord, and draw near to us now, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. In 1563, that's a long time ago, Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olivianus produced one of the greatest documents of the Protestant Reformation, the Heidelberg Catechism. Frederick III, the elector of Germany in that particular province at that particular time, sponsored these two excellent professors at the University of Heidelberg to write a catechism that he hoped would educate the church in his province 
in such a way as to ground the church in the great doctrines of the Christian faith, particularly in the Protestant tradition. The Heidelberg Catechism became a standard for Reformed churches throughout Europe, even across the world to the present day. In the opening two questions in the Heidelberg Catechism, we have the theme of the Catechism that runs to 129 questions, and we have the structure of the Heidelberg Catechism laid out for us for our benefit. Question one is the most famous question in the whole catechism. It asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then it gives this most excellent answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, I'm not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil. And so, preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. I knew that off by heart about a year and a half ago for a class that I did, and I've forgotten bits of it. But what a wonderful statement it is regarding our comfort, our only comfort in life and Death. And asking this question, what is the Christian's only comfort in life and death? The Heidelberg Catechism is calling us to consider what is our confidence or our assurance as believers in the life that we're living and in the death that is coming. During the early years of the Protestant Reformation, one of the great controversies between the Reformers and the Roman Catholics, was the subject of assurance of faith. Can a Christian be assured of their salvation? Can a believer know for certain that they are one of God's elect and they are going to heaven? The Reformers declared yes. They can. The Roman Catholics said, no, they can't. And such a notion is a dangerous one. Now, as the Reformation took root in Europe, 
And the first generation of the continental reformers with Luther and Zwingli. And then it gave way to the second with Calvin and Bullinger. And then it spread into England with men like William Perkins and William Ames. We see then that by the time we get to the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s, much had been written. Much had been preached, much had been said regarding this important matter of assurance of salvation from sin. The decades that passed were decades of controversy, decades of debate, decades of discussion. Can you have assurance of salvation? It's an important question. It's an important matter. The matter of faith and the matter of assurance are closely connected. Some will ask, can you have faith without assurance? Is there a spectrum of faith and assurance? Is assurance of the essence of faith? Does assurance always accompany faith? What are the marks of true assurance and true faith? These are the issues that occupied the reformers and occupied the church at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And these issues are still around today. As a pastor, I've spoken to some of you about your struggles with assurance of faith. And so over the next two Sunday nights, in the time that we have, I want to address this issue with you, what I'm calling the Christian's comfort. I stole it from the Heidelberg Catechism. And I want you to consider with me the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. Now, I have three basic objectives in taking up this subject tonight, and Lord willing, next week. I want to help all of us, but particularly the younger Christians amongst us who need instruction on this, but all of us to understand what the Bible has to say about assurance. I want to help those of you in particular who might be struggling with your assurance of salvation. And then a third and lesser concern, though it will undoubtedly come up, is I want to challenge some of you who might have a false assurance regarding your state before the Lord. And I want us to recognize that we're here this evening in the realm of Christian experience, the Christian life. All of us have experience of grace if we are Christians. And all of us wrestle with the matters that we're going to look at together. And tonight, I want us to think about, first of all, the character and the grounds of the Christian's comfort. The character of, on the grounds of the Christian's comfort. Next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll look at the cultivation of the Christian's comfort. Okay? So tonight we're thinking about what is the Christian's comfort and how is it obtained? Right? Next week we'll look at how we cultivate it. All right? So let's consider first of all then the character of the Christian's comfort. Or rather, uh, what is it when we're talking about the Christian's comfort? What are we talking about? Now, to help us understand the character of the Christian's comfort, I think it's important for us to understand then the connections between faith and 
assurance. We need to look at both of these realities and how they relate if we're to understand what we're talking about when we talk about the Christian's comfort, assurance of faith. Now, contrary to what you might think, in this very shallow and soundbite-driven age, our forefathers did not find defining faith easy. Did not find defining faith an easy thing, nor the relationship of assurance to faith. Joe Beakey's excellent PhD dissertation on assurance published in America here by the title The Quest for Full Assurance of Faith, The Legacy of Calvin and His Successors. He writes this, Assurance of faith has been explained in various ways throughout the church's history. So it depends on who you're reading. You've got to be aware of that, right? And whilst the early church was preoccupied with who God, the Father, Son, and Spirit were, theology proper, and particularly who Jesus was, Christology, when we get to the Reformation in the history of the church, we see that the battleground isn't the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Christ. That was settled. There was no real big debate over that. Catholics and Protestants generally agreed. The issue was, how then is a sinful man made right with a holy God? The realm was more soteriological. And of course, that throws up the issue of faith and of assurance. And this debate, can a believer be sure that they're saved? Can a sinful man believing in Jesus know for certain their sins are forgiven, they have peace with God, they have eternal life, and they are going to heaven? The reformer said, yes. The Catholic said, no. And we need to think this through. We need to understand this. With the passing of the generations and the coming of the Westminster Assembly in particular that was gathered at the behest of the English government during the, the Civil War in England in the 1640s. They gathered to hammer out a new confession of faith for the English church. They were initially supposed to simply revise the 39 articles of the English church, but they decided to throw that out and just write a new confession. That's how we got the Westminster Confession. And of course, our Baptist forefathers they liked it, but they made it better by changing a number of the paragraphs to suit their soteriological understanding of baptism and the church and what we have in our document. But in our text here tonight, it's interesting, isn't it? Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. That the writer to the Hebrews that Pastor Steve is convinced is Paul, and it may well be that's true. John Owen certainly thought that. The reality is that the writer to the Hebrews is calling these first century Christians to full assurance of faith. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near. Draw near where? To God, through Christ, right? With a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. If we want to understand what full assurance of faith really is, we need to understand, first of all, what faith is, and then what assurance is. 
And I want us to think about that just for a few moments. I was pleased to hear Pastor Steve quote one of my most uh, loved Dutchmen, and it wasn't Paul Vossen. It was Wilhelmus Abrakel. If you don't know who Wilhelmus Abrakel is, repent and buy his volumes. The great Dutch theologian, known as Father Abrakel to his parishioners, he speaks in his excellent work about four kinds of faith. And I just want to use this as a little summary to help you to understand what we're talking about, what we're not talking about. He speaks of four kinds of faith. He speaks of historical faith, temporal faith, miraculous faith, and saving faith. Now let me explain to you what he means. Historical faith, he says, is that which knows facts and is aware of facts stated in the Bible and accepts them as being true. The problem is that's the kind of faith that the devil has, right? James 2.19, the demons know that God is, but that doesn't save them, right? Then he talks about temporal faith. There's an acknowledgement, isn't there, in the Gospels that there are people who are temporary believers. I think we need to actually recapture that statement. I think we need to recapture that idea, right? Temporary believers. You know what a temporary believer is? As someone who confesses faith in Jesus Christ, seems to give evidence that they're trusting the Lord, might even get baptized and added to the church, but at some point down the line, they depart from the faith and they do not persevere anymore. That's a temporary believer, right? The parable of the sower tells us of such. And in a day of easy believism, I think then we need to recover this idea that there are temporary believers. I've been here 20 years at Emmanuel, and I can tell you, I could name you a whole bunch of temporary believers. They're no longer members at IBC. They're no longer walking with God. Some of them are no longer even interested in confessing Christ. And yet, there was a time he stood there and testified. Temporary believers exist. You might be one. I hope you're not. I hope you're not. But you have to recognize there is a temporary faith that someone can manifest, but that doesn't save. There is a miraculous faith that Abrakel talks about. He talks about a miraculous faith that is a conviction of heart that is immediately created by God in the soul and is connected to the performing of a supernatural act of God. Such a faith is seen in the healings and the signs in the days of the apostles. Abrakel says we don't see that kind of faith today. I'm really glad he was a cessationist. None of these are what we're talking about when we're thinking here in Hebrews Chapter 10 about full assurance of faith. What's being referred to here in Hebrews is saving faith. What we have in view here is the grace of what the old Puritans sometimes called justifying faith. The faith that brings us Christ and so brings us justification, sanctification and adoption. What does it involve? What does saving faith involve? Well, we know it's a gift from God. It's that which is wrought by the Spirit, right? Our faith is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. But we know that it involves a knowledge of the gospel. 
a knowledge of Jesus Christ. It involves an assent to those truths. More than that, a trusting of those truths. Here's how Abraco puts it. He says, the exercise, it is the exercising of a heartfelt trust in God through Christ, entrusting oneself to him. So we must understand that saving faith includes a knowledge of the gospel. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? Pastor Steve put it a little bit differently this morning, but it's the same truth, right? There's no way to God except through Christ. And there's no way to Christ except through hearing about him from the scriptures, right? So we need to reckon with this. We need to understand this. Saving faith includes a knowledge of Christ, who he is, and what he has done. But more than that, it includes our assenting to who he is and what he has done, and a trusting of our hearts, our lives, our totality of our being to him, that we would receive the benefits that he has secured because of who he is and because of what he has done. And so saving faith is more than an assenting to the truths and the promises of the gospel. It is a trusting of yourself to Christ himself who is declared or revealed through the truths of the gospel and the promises of the gospel. And this is important for us to understand if we're going to understand what we mean by the full assurance of faith. Turn to a couple of texts just for a moment. Turn to Romans chapter 10. I've just alluded to it. Turn there just for a moment and consider what Paul writes here to the Romans. Romans 10, verse 10. And it's in this whole context here of gospel ministry, gospel preaching, and confessing Christ, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised them from the dead, you will be saved. Now notice, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Right. So Paul is identifying for us here that faith is that which we believe from the heart. That includes our intellect. It includes our affections. It includes our will. So ask yourself this evening, do you savingly believe the gospel? Do you savingly believe in Jesus Christ? Do you know what the scriptures say regarding him? You had an excellent exposition of who Christ is and what Christ has done this morning in Steve's excellent sermon in Matthew from the baptism of Jesus. It's true, there is no, no bottom to that. He is our prophet, our priest, our king, the only mediator between God and man. He is God, the Son, come from the Father, assuming human flesh, dwelling amongst us without sin, that all righteousness would be fulfilled on our behalf. Do you believe that? Are you persuaded? Are you trusting yourself to him and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, for peace with God, for eternal life? You see, if you're not, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You're yet in your sins. 
you will yet perish in your own unrighteousness, in your own guilt, in your own corruption. You need to believe in Christ if you would be saved. Do you believe? Do you affirm these things? Are you persuaded of these things? This is what it means to believe in Christ, to know who he is and what he has done, to affirm who he is and what he has done, and to commit your whole self, your whole heart to him. That you would say with Horatius Bonner, in a life I did not live, in a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. My whole eternity. Can you say that tonight? And you're a believer. You're right with God. You have eternal life. You're going to heaven. You say, well, pastor, I believe. But help my unbelief. Well, now we come to the issue of assurance. Abraco says this. To believe that Christ is my Savior belongs to assurance. This is the fruit of faith, which can vary in degree and can even be entirely absent. But you're not saved by assurance, right? You're saved by believing in Jesus. Abrakel makes a distinction between saving faith that takes hold of Christ to save and assurance that the Christ whom we take hold of to save is our Savior. And that's crucial. Here we must understand that assurance is not of the essence of saving faith, that it is not that which is saving faith, but rather assurance is of the fruit of saving faith, that which arises out of believing in Jesus. We must understand that we believe in Christ and we come to assurance of it. As our text says here, we are to come with full assurance of faith, implication being we can come with faith, but it may not be full assurance. And that is the distinction we must understand. This is the battle in the whole realm of our Christian life. That's why it's possible that I can come to your home and I can ask you, how are you doing? You say, Pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus for my salvation, but, but you know, I, I struggle to really be certain. I wrestle to be really sure. What are you wrestling with there? Not that you don't believe, because you do believe but you're wrestling with the certainty, the assurance of faith. And brothers and sisters, this is what we are offered also by God in his grace. This is what is also possible for us as Christians. With saving faith and assurance as our objects, right, regarding uh, what we must experience by the grace of God, we need to understand very clearly that it is when we obtain assurance of faith that the, the comfort of God's grace comes. You know how Jim Renahan puts it in that excellent book that you hopefully are all buying and passing out to as many people as you can, chapter 18 of the assurance of grace and salvation. In his introduction, here's what Jim Renahan says. He says, assurance allows the persevering believer comfort and encouragement 
through all the blessings and obstacles of life. Through all the blessings and obstacles of life. So what is assurance? Our confession helps us in chapter 18, verse, uh, paragraph 1, when it says this, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, here it is, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace. Assurance is being certain. Assurance is being sure that you are believing in Christ and therefore a child of God. Paragraph 2 of chapter 18 goes on to say this. This certainty, this assurance, is not bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God and as a fruit thereof keeping the heart both humbly and holy. When thinking about assurance, We must not view it as just mere wishful thinking or something that we try and contrive in ourselves. It is something that God, by his grace, works in the soul. It doesn't emerge from anything that is uncertain or anything that we invent. It comes from God through that which God provides. And so assurance is a heartfelt certainty of your soul. That your faith in Christ is real and genuine and true and brings to you all the benefits and all the blessings that God in Christ offers to you. That brings us then to consider, secondly, the grounds. The grounds of this comfort. Because it's important for us to say, well, I have faith. I'm not sure about the assurance issue. Well, how do, I, how do I obtain this assurance, Pastor? What's the grounds of my assurance? I want us to think about that before we close. Our confession lays out for us three elements here regarding our assurance. Now, let me explain what I mean by the grounds of our comfort. Regarding the grounds of our comfort or our assurance, John Murray, the 20th century Westminster Seminary theologian, wrote this. When we speak of the grounds of assurance, we are thinking of the ways, the ways in which a believer comes to have assurance, not of the grounds on which his salvation rests. The grounds of salvation, they are as secure for the person who does not have full assurance just as for the person who has full assurance. So when we're dealing here with the grounds of our assurance, we're thinking about what are the means by which you obtain assurance? How do you gain assurance? And our confession lays it out by way of two particular aspects. There is an outward objective element and there is an inward subjective element. And it's so important that you know this. It's so important that you understand this because it will help you when you're potentially assailed with doubts, when you're potentially wrestling with, struggling with your assurance of your salvation. The first objective uh, grounds or means of assurance that is outside of yourself 
is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done. In other words, the one who is the object of your faith is also the means through which you obtain certainty. Because what do you discover when you look at Christ? You discover that in Christ, you've got all that you need to be right with God. It's got nothing to do with how you feel. It's got nothing to do with whether it's raining outside or it's sunny outside. It's got nothing to do with your circumstances whatsoever. Your standing with God. Your acceptance with God. Your salvation from sin. The reality for you is this, that when you are struggling with your assurance, the first place you must look for help is not inward, outward. It's not into your heart, but out to your Savior. The Christ who is sitting right now at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who having ascended there is the same one who was incarnated in the world through the womb of the virgin, who lived a righteous life, who died a sacrificial death, who rose from the dead and ascended on high. You must look to him, who he is, and what he has done first and foremost for any possible assurance of acceptance with God. And that's why preaching is so important in your life. Because our job is to keep pointing you to him. To keep encouraging your faith and your full assurance of faith. And that's why when you miss the preaching of the word of God, the first person you harm the most is yourself. It's yourself. Just like Thomas, remember? Thomas, in the upper room, after the resurrection, first time he wasn't there. Met the disciples the rest of the week. They were telling him, you know what happened on Sunday night? Jesus appeared. We met with Christ. We saw the risen Savior. You know what Thomas didn't do? Missed the next time. He was there the next time because he realized he'd missed the blessing. And my dear brother, my dear sister, when you absent yourself from the preaching of the word where Christ is set before you regularly, you are the one who suffers first and foremost because your faith needs to be continually nurtured, that you would have full assurance of your salvation in Christ. And our job as your pastors is not to point you to us, it's to point you to him. Just as you were pointed to him this morning, you're pointed to him again this evening, and you go out into the week, having been reminded of who he is and what he has done, and you feed upon him by faith, you look to him by faith whole week, but it gets harder and harder, so guess what? You come back next week, and we preach you full again. Fill you with Jesus. That you might go out again. Then you leak. Then you come back. And this is how God gets us to heaven. This is how God gets us to heaven. This is the means. So you must first and foremost look out from yourself to Christ in order for you to obtain your assurance. You see, God has accepted the work of Christ on behalf of sinners. And so in Christ, we are accepted by God. And so we must look to Jesus. 
for the forgiveness of our sins, for peace with God. And we must look to Jesus for the assurance that he is enough. And we need no one else. And we need nothing else. That's why it is indeed true that assurance of salvation comes first and foremost by looking outside of ourselves to Christ because Christ brings us, as Steve reminded us this morning, to God. The one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only God there is, the only God that you must have anything to do with. He alone is accessible only through the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. And so your assurance is Christ-centered but Trinitarian. Because by the Son, you come to the Father, and it happens by the power of the Spirit. So important to understand that. That brings us to the second element, however. The second element, because there is a second element, there is a subjective element to this that we must consider. There is an inward element, and here we move into the whole realm, particularly then of the work of the Spirit. And our confession makes a very interesting statement that it is by the evidences of the graces of the Spirit wrought in our hearts that we also have assurance, right? Now, Puritan pastors, when they used to seek to help their church members who were struggling with the issue of assurance, they would often have them come and consider this assurance by thinking through what they call a syllogism, right? Syllogism is simply a, a method of reasoning in the heart with a major proposition, a, a, a minor proposition, and a logical conclusion, right? So let me give you an example. All human beings are sinners. That's the major premise, right? The minor one is, I'm a human being, right? So if all human beings are sinners and I'm a human being, what's the conclusion? I'm a sinner, Right? So that was the kind of way the pastors would, would reason with them. And I've done something like that with some of you, right? Uh, when we've talked, right, that the work of the Spirit creates a hunger for righteousness. Oh, pastor, I hunger for righteousness. Well, what would that indicate? The work of the Spirit. Oh, that's encouraging. That's right. Because do you realize do you realize that there's not one inclination of your soul toward God that is created by anything else but the Holy Spirit? Do you realize that? Well, I thought just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a naturally really smart person. So I've kind of thought up, I've thought up the Trinity. No, you haven't. That's nonsense, right? It's the Spirit of God through the Scriptures that has revealed truth to you. And when you think upon God and the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and you think upon Christ and, and His work of salvation, you know who's doing that in your soul? That's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. And so what are the inward graces of God that help bring assurance to the souls of the saints? Well, I simply want to just address three this evening. Very briefly. First one, you already know, the grace of faith, right? The grace of faith. You know who Jesus is. You know what he has done. You affirm it. You trust yourself to him and to what he has done in the hope then that you will receive the forgiveness of your sins and peace with God, right? And you, you know that is the reality of it, right? In your own heart, in your own experience. That's why you have time in the word. That's why you pray. Uh, that's why you seek God, 
right? When you're in difficulties, you're looking to him through his son to help you, right? There's the, the grace of the Spirit. And, and you know if it's there and you know if it's not. That inward element. But there's another side to it. Because faith is never on its own. There's the saving grace of repentance. True repentance. Not repented. Right? Well, I did it 20 years ago. I don't have to do it anymore. It's the grace of repentance. Ongoing turning from sin to the living God. Just as the church at Thessalonica were described as turning from idols to the living God. They were believing and repenting. Right? They come together. And so you can truly identify in your soul if there is repentance there. The reality is that you know what dishonors God, what displeases God, if you have any understanding of the law of God. And you know, I once was a blatant liar. I don't lie anymore. In fact, truth really matters to me. And I want to be honest. There's the evidence of the grace of repentance. Well, I once was very sexually immoral, but sexual purity matters to me now. Not only in the way I act, but in the way I think and in the way I behave in my mind and in my soul. There's evidence that there's repentance present. And we can evaluate honestly our hearts before the Lord with regards to these inward graces. There's no evidence in your heart as you think upon your soul's uh, condition that you are truly believing the gospel and you are truly turning from sin. Then you're going to really have some issues. But you need to evaluate that yourself. That's why when we come to the Lord's Supper, right? Part of the responsibility we have at the Lord's Supper is what? Self-examination. Now, it's true. Primarily, it should be towards our brothers and sisters, our relationship with them in the church, but it's also regarding our own spiritual condition, our walk with God. And then there is the presence of the grace of love in our hearts, which we can flesh out simply by thinking about two truths, love to God and love to our neighbor, which is the law written on your heart, by the way. And love to God includes loving his name, loving his worship, loving his being, loving his day. Love for our neighbor is in the second table of the law. And you know in your own heart when you are loving and when you are not loving. And you can tell those graces are present. Now, it's true. There are times when I look at my own soul, I think it's present, but boy, it's on life support. I ain't loving right now. I'm actually struggling with resentment or bitterness or hatred, right? But my point is, assurance will be affected by the inward state of our hearts regarding our walk with God. You cannot possibly have true, full assurance of faith and be walking in blatant, open, rebellious sin. It's simply not possible. Whatever kind of assurance that is that you've got in that state, it's not, not full assurance of faith. It's some kind of false counterfeit. You need to be aware of that. You need to reckon with this. One of the reasons why this great controversy erupted in the Reformed Church back at the time of the Reformation, in the second or third part of the Reformation in the early 1600s, was this, because... In the early part of the Reformation, 
Faith and assurance were very closely experienced by Luther and Calvin as they fought against Roman Catholicism. But as the great truths settled into the church, second and third generation, you know what happened? There was presumption in the hearts of many. As long as I intellectually nod in the direction of these truths, as long as I don't deny them verbally, life could be completely contrary in the heart, could be completely contrary in the life, but you would still be regarded as Christian. And this is why the great debate arose, because the pastors realized we've got a problem now, not so much with Rome over can you have true assurance, but with Protestants who seem to have a false assurance and not living in a godly manner. And brothers and sisters, we must fight against this. We are not prone so much to the issue that we can't have assurance because we're Protestants. We're more prone to the fact that we can excuse our sins on the basis of, I have assurance. I am a Christian. Therefore, I don't take my own sin that seriously. We should all take our own sin very seriously. That brings us to the last point. The second internal element, more difficult to lay out for us perhaps, is this issue of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Turn to Romans 8, 15 through 16 as we close. I want you just to see this and hopefully lay it up for next week. Romans 8, 15 and 16. Paul says in verse 12 of Romans 8, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen's great sermon there on you better be killing your sinner, it will be killing you, is preached on that text to teenagers. Verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Now, the subject of the witness of the Spirit is a vast subject. We cannot do it justice in a few moments. And indeed, if you read certain Reformed men, they'll disagree with other Reformed men on what is this witness of the Holy Spirit. There are those who understand it to be a direct communication of the Spirit to the soul of the believer. There are others who believe that you can only really enjoy the witness of the Spirit if you reason in your soul the way I mentioned regarding syllogism. Others believed it to be an impression on the soul that comes about as a result of reading the Scriptures. Here's what Benjamin Keach said, one of our great Baptist forefathers. And as the Spirit is the earnest of glory picking up on Ephesians, or of everlasting life, he says this, so also he is the witness of God in our souls. Yes, such a witness whose testimony every Christian may trust and rest upon. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and it witnesses to us our adoption that we are children. And so heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, there is a twofold witness of the Spirit. He's talking here about the fact that the Spirit does a work in us that assures us that we're adopted into the family of God, that we are children of God. Now, we may not be the best children at times, and we aren't, but we're still children. 
And according to Keach, we see here there is a direct act of the Spirit on our souls as we receive the promises of God in His Word. So that's the idea of reading the Scriptures and the Spirit comes and and gives us assurance. And then there is a witness by reflex. That is, we are reflecting on our heart's condition. And as we do that, we receive assurance that, yes, we are in a state of grace and not in a state of sin anymore. And we see then that when it comes to the grounds of our comfort, or the means by which assurance comes to our lives. There are three. One objective, we look out from ourselves to Christ and to what he has done. Two, subjective, the evidences of grace in our hearts and the witness of the Spirit in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, I simply want to ask you this as we close, before we get to next week in the cultivation of assurance. Do you enjoy full assurance of faith this evening? Is the Christian's comfort a reality in your life? Now, I realize that I could be making some work for myself and a whole pile of you are going to send me emails and we'll have to meet this week to talk about your assurance. But I want to address this issue because assurance is something we should all desire and it is also something that we can all possess. Can you see that through trusting in Christ, you are a new creation? You're not what you once were. Your possessing of grace in your inner man is clear to you that your desires, your your hungerings, your thirstings are, are after the things of God. Not perfectly, not without sin, not without challenge, but they are there genuinely. Or are you sitting tonight saying, Pastor, I, I believe, but I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I really struggle with assurance. I really don't know if I, I'm sure of it. Let me say this as we close. As a second generation reformer, John Calvin was prone to see faith and assurance very closely connected, even more so than some of the more nuances of our fathers later in the Reformation. Now, that doesn't mean that their doctrine was different. It just means that one uh, particular understanding of it in Calvin's time developed uh, as the Reformation took hold in England. But Calvin makes a useful distinction that I think will help you. To sum up the character and the grounds of our comfort or our assurance. Calvin distinguished between faith as it should be and faith as it is in our experience. And I really think this is helpful. Faith as it should be refers to what faith will become as it develops in our lives. In other words, as we grow in our Christianity. Whereas faith as it is refers to where we are at in our Christian experience and our life of faith. Now, if you're a young Christian tonight, you may be struggling with assurance because you haven't yet grown enough in your knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done. You're believing in him, but your knowledge of who he is and what he has done is still young and immature. That's one of the reasons why your pastors want you to grow in your knowledge of Christ, right? It may be that you're recognizing that in your, in your heart, uh, your, your faith and your repentance and your, and your love are, are, are immature. So you're struggling to have assurance. It may be that as you read your Bible and, and your understanding is immature, that you're not enjoying in your heart the witness of the Spirit. It may be that as you reflect upon that, that you're struggling. You say, I believe, but I'm not sure, right? Listen. All of us, irrespective of who we are, are on the spectrum of Christian maturity. 
know that faith and assurance, they are connected. But sometimes, while faith is present, assurance can be absent. We must understand this. We are justified by faith, not assurance of faith. Justified by faith, not assurance of faith. Yet, it is God's will that the faith that justifies would be an assured faith. That we have certainty regarding who Jesus is and what he has done and all the benefits that are ours in him. That we would have that comfort, truly, that we are children of God, adopted into his family. And so it is my prayer for you as your pastor, as I preach these messages to you, as we talk about these things, it is my prayer that it will be your experience, not simply to be believing in Jesus, praise God that you are, you're saved, but that you have full assurance that you're believing in Jesus and that you will then draw near with full assurance of faith to the God who has loved you and sent his son to save you and bring you to himself. Next week, Lord willing, we'll think about how we cultivate this full assurance of faith. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice tonight that Christ is enough. We rejoice tonight that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are made right with you. And yet we bless you that there is even more for us to experience in our Christian lives with regards to this great and blessed gift of full assurance of faith. And Lord, we pray tonight that we would encourage one another in this, that we would understand that it is a gift from you, that it is something that you do, that it is something that benefits us as we grow in the Lord. And so our Father, we ask tonight for those in our midst who are struggling and who are doubting that they would not lose heart because their assurance is not yet full perhaps, but rather that they would grow in their knowledge of you, grow in their understanding of who Jesus is and who, what he has done, that they might come to a full assurance of faith, that they would know tonight that they're not saved by their assurance. They're saved by believing in Jesus. And that that very truth in itself might even be used by your Spirit to bring them to a greater certainty of the great truths, the great blessings, the great benefits that are ours in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that he is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king, that he is enough is all that we need to be right with you, to know you, and to live for you. And we pray that we would be an encouragement to one another to grow in our relationship with you, that the work of your Spirit in our hearts would continue in such a manner as to grant to us that certainty, that full assurance of faith that you promise us in your word. Oh Lord, hear us, we do ask. Bless these things to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.